Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. The people involved in the Lumumba plot thought that this secret would go with them to their graves. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. Hello, everybody. It's Chris here. I hope you're well. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author Stuart A. Reed, and we discuss his book, The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination in the Congo. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us directly by becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies, you'll get access to our special show, Extra Shot, which follows our episodes of Espresso Martini. On top of that, depending on which level you select, you'll get a free coffee cup or set of coasters that will be sent to you in the post. If you can't financially support us, that's absolutely fine. What I would ask is that you leave a review on your podcast app. Every review boosts our algorithm, and that helps people discover the show. So reviews are really important, so please do leave a review on your podcast app. Links to Stuart's book are in the show notes below. Without further ado, let's get going. I hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. Thank you for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. So, Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on. For the benefit of the audience, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm an editor at Foreign Affairs Magazine in New York, and I'm the author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination, which is about uh, Congo in 1960 and the country's short-lived Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. And before we dive into specifics about your book, can you just tell us a little bit about what sort of drew you to the story of Patrice Lumumba and how you went about sort of researching this book and some of the challenges you faced? Because quite a bit of our audience are aspiring authors or authors who are interested in intelligence history and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, I've spoken to a few people over the years who've sort of dug through archives and had all sorts of um, adventures. And so if you could give some insight of what it was like sort of researching this book, that'd be great. Yeah. So I had the chance to travel to Congo in 2014, and that got me interested in the country's history. And the more I read, the more I realized there was this great untold story there of the Congo's traumatic birth as an independent nation. Um, it was Cold War crisis that was front page news of the New York Times at the time. And later it, it was overshadowed by other Cold War crises and sort of became forgotten. Um, so that was what attracted me to it. And then the more I researched, the more I realized there are also these great larger than life characters, above all Patrice Lumumba, the prime minister, but, you know, Doug Hammarskjöld, the secretary general of the UN, Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief at the time, and uh, Mobutu, who ended up becoming the country's dictator. Um, and the research, it's, it's based primarily on archival documents. So that's documents produced by the State Department, the CIA, the United Nations, the Belgian government. But that wasn't enough because that, for one thing, those documents tend to leave out sort of the human side of the story. And so there were a lot of archival histories I relied on heavily, people telling their reminiscences of the time. And then I also needed to get the Congolese side of the story, which um, there were far fewer documents from that side. So I compensated for that by interviewing people who um, were alive at the time, uh, you know, or children of, of important figures at the time, I traveled to the country to be able to describe the sights and sounds of the place. And I also read a lot of, you know, obscure memoirs written by Congolese politicians in the 60s and 70s that were sort of uh, out of print and hard to find. So through all those sources, 
I was able, I hope, to really put the reader in the room and make readers feel like they were there and and watching the events unfold in real time. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you very much did that. And am I right? You you even spoke with Lumumba's surviving family. I think it was his daughter. Is that right? Yeah, I spoke with his daughter Juliana and his son Francois, um, both of whom were very helpful and. You know, they, they were not going to be able to, um, because they were so young at the time, tell me much about the political intrigue and, and that side of the story. But they were very useful for describing their father, Lumumba the man, what they remember of uh, events from their perspective at the time. And and so that was um, a key additional source for the book. Yeah. And can you talk to us a little bit about your trip to the Congo? Because I, I, I watched, uh, I, I'm a big Anthony Bourdain fan who uh, you know passed away in 2018 I think he did a really great episode in the Congo I think that was like 2013 14 around about probably the time when you went out there um what was it like what what was your trip what did you get up to on your trip well unlike Bourdain I did not steam up the the Congo River and uh you know barbecue chicken on a boat but I <laughs> Uh, I've, I went there several times and for, for several different reasons. Some were purely book focused. Some I was also, I interviewed the president at the time, Joseph Kabila. And, um, you know, I, I was very fortunate in that I, I visited the three main cities, um, Kinshasa, which used to be Leopoldville, Kisangani, which used to be Stanleyville and Lubumbashi, which used to be Elizabethville. Those are the, the, three biggest, I believe, cities in the Congo. Um, and and they were very important in Lumumba's own life and in the story I'm I'm telling. The you know, the one key breakthrough was when I was in Lubumbashi, then known as Elizabethville back in the day, I uh that that's it was near that city that Lumumba was murdered in January 1961. And so I I wanted to visit the site of his death and I hired a fixer, a local journalist who um, you know, helped arrange that. And I, I went there and the site has sort of been turned into a, something of a monument. And when I was there talking to local people nearby, um, one of them mentioned that there was actually a man who lived not far away who had witnessed Lumumba's murder back when he was a teenager. He was hunting on a hunting trip with his father, hunting antelope. And late at night, he saw these headlights come off the road and, and out of the car came Lumumba and um, his fellow prisoners who, who were ended up being murdered with him. So that was, uh, an, you know, I, I had no plans to interview this man. I did not even know he existed, but it sort of just happened while I was visiting there and was able to include a lot of the details he provided in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably why it's so important to go and visit the places that you write about. I remember I worked on a project a long time ago um, in Portugal about, uh, it was about the declining cork industry and how it was affecting the Iberian links. And just by being there, quite a few interesting kind of characters that have popped out of the woodwork wanting to be interviewed. So you do, yeah, you do end up meeting some interesting people. Yeah, and, and a lot of the architecture and physical infrastructure, in fact, dates back to the colonial period. So many of the buildings were still standing in, uh, you know, more decrepit condition, but um, but still what someone would have seen in 1960. So that was very mm-hmm. useful to be able to be on the ground and, and see what it looked like. Yeah, get that sense of atmosphere in place. Yeah. So um, can you, it's probably quite a big question, but can you give us a sort of a brief overview of the Congo's political history, particularly what life was like under colonial rule before independence? So Belgian involvement in the Congo began in the 1880s when King Leopold of Belgium claimed the land for himself. And what was unusual is that it was not, it did not legally speaking belong to the Belgian state. It belonged to he himself personally. And that period was most famous for the atrocities that the Belgians committed by, you know, forcing Congolese to gather up uh, rubber and chopping off hands. And this this led to an international outcry that caused the colony to transfer uh, from Leopold's hands to the Belgian state. And under the Belgian government, colonialism you know, in some ways was uh, it was slightly less offensive, but it was still colonialism and there was still a conscription in a colonial army. Um, 
And and that lasted uh, until 1960, which is when the country became independent. And at the very end, basically, Belgium realized you know, it, it had envisioned holding on to the Congo for decades to come, even as late as the 1950s. But the winds of change were sweeping across Africa. The Algerians were fighting a bloody anti-colonial war against the French, and Belgium realized that it needed to quickly offload its colonies, that it wasn't its colony. It wasn't sustainable to, yeah. to hold on to it. And sorry, what year was independence? 1960, June 30th, 1960. Thank you. And um, can you talk to us then a, a little bit about who Patrice Lumumba was and his life sort of before becoming prime minister of the Congo? Yeah, so he, he as you mentioned, was, was the country's first leader, its democratically elected leader, prime minister upon independence. And his personal story is this real, uh, it's a remarkable rise. He was um, an autodidact. He was extremely well-read. He was profoundly energetic. And there were real limits to what someone could do under Belgian colonialism, but he made the most of uh, the space he was permitted. And so he, you know, there were not, there was not a university in Congo until very, very late. Um, and even then there was no uh, you know, political instruction there because it was, uh, you know, no liberal arts because it was thought that it would, um, you know, give the Congolese ideas about independence. So within this extremely cramped context, Patrice Lumumba emerged as this anti-colonialist figure uh, a nationalist, a um, energetic writer. He he had begun his career as a postal clerk working for the colonial administration. He then um, got caught embezzling funds and was uh, put in jail. And then after that, reinvented himself as a beer promoter and then had this very quick political rise in the late 1950s as um, suddenly, you know, independence was an idea that was breaking out among the Congolese after having been um, you know, uh, repressed for, for so long. And he seemed quite, I mean, I don't know if it's the right term, but a bit of a Renaissance man. He seemed very much interested in sort of literature, European culture, history. I think he was eating sort of bread and jam for breakfast with his daughters and things. He seemed fascinating character. Yeah, I mean, he was, he, w what is striking in retrospect is when you read some of his writings from the mid to late 1950s is they seem very moderate in retrospect. Um, which partly reflected uh, a political evolution that was in process, but also reflected a strategic choice on his part to not yet break with the Belgian colonial administration. And so he was advocating ideas about, you know, a Belgio-Congolese partnership and, you know, imagine that the king of Belgium would still remain uh, the head of state of an independent Congo, and then that changed very quickly in in the late 1950s when he really, um, you know, awoke politically. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about Joseph Mobutu and his early life and his later friendship with Lumumba? And I, I must admit, I didn't know that they had been friends until I read your book, so I was quite um, intrigued by that. Yeah, the the Mobutu most people know if they've heard of him is the sort of caricature of a Cold War pro-American dictator. Um, he was this you know, massive kleptocrat who ran his country, which he renamed Zaire, into the ground over the course of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but earlier, he, he uh, was a very different man. And in my book, I uh, you know, talk about him in the late 1950s and, and in 1960 when he was Lumumba's friend. Um, he was Lumumba's assistant, basically, a sort of private secretary who ran errands for Lumumba. Um, and was, you know, Lumumba was his mentor and Mobutu was the junior partner in the relationship. Mm. That mm. changed very quickly when um, events intervened and, and Mobutu was given the position of, of being in charge of the army. And that was a crucial moment that led to the Mobutu we know today. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about then about Larry Devlin, who was the CIA station chief at the time of independence in the Congo? Yeah, so he, he too is a, a fascinating character. Um, he was uh, in his mid to late 30s, I think 37, 38, when he was appointed station chief of Congo, which was about to become independent. 
And that really spoke to the fact that the CIA, like the rest of the U.S. government, did not consider the Congo particularly important or a place that was likely to have uh, much interesting going on geopolitically. Um, it was it had long been this sort of placid seeming Belgian colony, and and Devlin was you know put in charge of a not particularly important posting that eventually became very important. But um, yeah, he was he was a bon vivant. He was a true cold warrior and uh, made crucial decisions that played a massive role in uh, events in Congo. And, you know, one of the fascinating things about the, the events that I'm writing about is that there were there were key decisions made in this very brief period of time from independence in June 1960 you know, over the course of the rest of that year and into early 1961, that ended up shaping the entire history of that country for decades to come. Yeah, yeah. And Devlin was quite a fascinating kind of character himself. He um, he was a World War II veteran, wasn't he? And he he uh, his wife was a member of, was she a member of the French Resistance, I think? Was that right? She was a member of the, the Free French Forces. Yeah, yeah. And, and he just struck me as such a... I don't know, such an interesting character, you know, if you're writing a, a fictional book, I mean, he would really still stand out. Yeah, and he was a throwback to an era of the CIA that would soon disappear, which was in in a mm. time of poor communications, you needed, if you were the CIA, to have men on the ground who were capable of taking independent decisions and, and being action-oriented and not checking with Washington, D.C. every minute for instructions. And he was mm. very much that. He was an independent operator he made he was decisive he acted on his own he you know got ahead of his skis but he's also bureaucratically talented enough to smooth it over with washington um but he was a uh, from another era eventually he would turn out yeah yeah indeed indeed well can you talk to us about Lumumba's sort of rise to power and the challenges that he and his short-lived government faced in the newly independent congo yeah so it, it, the challenges came very quickly um the Congo became independent, as I mentioned, on June 30th, 1960. On July 5th, the army mutinied. The, the, new, uh, the new country's army had, um, you know, quite bizarrely in retrospect, a white Belgian officer corps that mm. remained on after independence and a black Congolese rank and file. As you can imagine, um, that was not a particularly popular arrangement and the mutiny happened very quickly all of a sudden, um, there was no one in charge in the country. And the white population, many of whom were running parts of the administration, everything from air traffic controllers, doctors, etc., fled very quickly. And so you had this army mutiny, a mass exodus of the Belgian population, and then uh, Belgian military forces intervened without Congolese permission. So you had, you know, they had just formally ceded control of this colony, now an independent country, and then very quickly re-intervened and sent in troops. And to many, it looked like a, a recolonization of sorts. Yeah. Um, Lumumba is desperate at this point. His country is falling apart. The, you know, the former colonial power is acting as if independence had never happened. And so he calls on the United Nations, which musters this massive peacekeeping operation, really the first of its kind. Um, before the Congo operation, the UN had monitored truces and ceasefires, but never before had it been responsible for restoring order to an entire country. So the UN sends in massive numbers of peacekeepers, over 10,000, um, but Lumumba, uh, it, you know, the it fails to restore order. There's a secession in the mineral-rich province of Katanga. The country's falling apart, and Lumumba makes the fateful decision to call on the Soviet Union for help. Yeah. Well, two questions on that. Um, so first of all, what was Lumumba actually sort of trying to achieve in government before it all kind of went wrong? Well, he didn't have much time. And, uh, you know, he, he gave a speech about his supposed agenda, and it was... Um, you know, nothing particularly controversial. I think he wanted to chart a relatively neutral course for the Congo, which many other African countries that had recently achieved independence were also doing. Um, he wanted to develop the country's economy. He wanted to, um, you know, be a sort of 
Pan-African beacon. But he only had about, you know, a few days before all that fell off the agenda. And the only goal he could possibly think of was survival, both the survival of his country, the survival of his government, and then eventually his own personal survival. Yeah, yeah. And and he turned obviously to the Soviet Union for help. Uh, and is, uh, why why was that? Well, it's important to point out who he turned to help for first. So as I mentioned, he went to the UN, um, but yeah. the UN um, sort of proved to be feckless, which uh, was perhaps only natural given that it requires the consent of all the permanent members of the Security Council to act, which included the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, and, and the UN was not able to send troops into the breakaway province of Katanga, so it wasn't able to fully restore order. And so Lumumba then traveled to the United States. He went to New York, went to Washington, D.C. President Eisenhower was out of town, but he met with the Secretary of State at the time, Christian Herter, and he basically begged for American help. Um, he was rebuffed by Washington. They sort of uh, had little interest in directly helping him and and suggested that all aid had to go through the UN. They were also yeah. beginning to have doubts about his reliability and he seemed uh, to them somewhat erratic and, and not trustworthy. And he even at one point called on the United States to send in US troops to Congo. So you know, later, ironically, he would be branded as this you know pro-communist stooge he was nothing of the sort, and the best piece of evidence for that is the fact that he requested U.S. troops to intervene, which the Soviets would not have been happy about, of course. Um, so only after exhausting those options did he call on the Soviet Union. And there was no evidence that I found that he had much affinity for the Soviet Union. All of his statements, in fact, suggested he was sort of more inherently pro-Western and pro-American. Um, but he needed help putting his country back together. And he, he himself even said, I'll call on the devil if need be. So this was an act of desperation, not um, not made from a place of strength. Yeah. And it did prove to be his undoing, however. Yeah. And, and is there, you know, why, why was Lumumba's government kind of of concern to Belgium and American governments to the point where, at least for America, they just didn't want to help? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And it, it's harder to answer than one might imagine. You know, as writing this book, I had this nagging question of why did the United States care so much about who was in power in this country in the middle of Africa? There were not significant economic resources that the United States was getting from it at the time. Mm. Um, it was far from both the Soviet Union and the United States. There was not a significant American population there. So why on earth did Americans decide that this was a place that mattered? And I think there are sort of two answers to that. One is what um, Senator William Fulbright would later call the arrogance of power, which was the idea that the United States had become so powerful that it began thinking that simply because it could intervene in events elsewhere across what was then known as the third world, therefore it had to. So that was part of it. And then the other part was the domino theory, which was, you know, had such a hold over U.S. policymakers at the time. And it was the idea that if one country went communist, then another would, and then another would, and all of a sudden you'd have, in this case, you know, a red Africa, and somehow that would have been disastrous. In truth, the Soviets weren't particularly interested in Congo. The United States was far more interested. Um, and they the Soviets viewed it as sort of a far-off place where they could maybe score some political uh, propaganda points here and there, but not a place that they could seriously invest in. They viewed Lumumba as an unreliable person who was not going to be some Soviet puppet. Um, but at the time, within the halls of power of Washington within the CIA, there was this real idea that the Congo mattered and the United States had to prevent Lumumba from staying in power and, and that this was an important country um, who that, that couldn't be allowed to get anywhere near the Soviet orbit. Yeah, it's quite mind-boggling in a way because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, 
he offered to ha station U.S. troops in the Congo. He requested them, yet the American government are concerned about rise of communism and they've just been offered to you know, put in troops to a country that they're concerned might be taken over by the communists. It's just random. It's where it makes no sense. Yeah, there was a real misjudging of Lumumba, in my opinion. Um, yeah. it, it just in the Cold War paranoid atmosphere, um, Lumumba himself, himself it, it should be said, was, you know, he, he was somewhat erratic. He he would say one thing and then do another. He would change his mind. That branded him as unreliable and potentially useful for the Soviets. In Washington, that was the view. Um, I think it's the far more likely way to explain that behavior is a desperate man facing unprecedented chaos in his country, you know, mm. desperately trying to um, stay in control. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lumumba's rule was sort of brought to a dramatic end um, and by a coup that was sort of led by his former friend, uh, Joseph Mobutu. Can you talk to us about this coup and sort of what led Mobutu to sort of turn on Lumumba? Yeah, so the the story of Mobutu and Lumumba's friendship is, is this fascinating um, through line in, in the book in that, as I mentioned, Lumumba was the mentor to Mobutu, the, you know, um, uh, senior partner in the relationship. And he fatefully appointed Mobutu to be in charge of the army because Mobutu himself had served in the army for six or seven years. And um, Mobutu turned to be turned out to be quite skilled at, at exerting control over his officers, uh, thanks in, in large part to the American cash he was receiving. Mm -hmm. And as Lumumba flailed, over the course of July and August and early September 1960, Mobutu was facing a lot of pressure to intervene. Um, what happened first, not to get into too much detail, is that um, so Lumumba was prime minister. There was also president of Congo, Joseph Kasavubu. He ends up firing Lumumba, announcing that Lumumba's fired. And Lumumba turns around and says, no, you can't fire me. I fire you. So the two main politicians in the country had, you know, both fired each other and both claimed that they were in charge and not the other. And into that void steps Mobutu. Um, he had been urged uh, heavily by Larry Devlin to act and, um, and had been provided money by the Americans. And he then announced on September 14th, 1960, that the politicians had been neutralized and that he was now in charge. And that was Sub-Saharan Sub Africa's first military coup. And it would be the beginning of a very long period of dictatorial rule for Congo. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Can you talk to us about what is now known about Lumumba's imprisonments and murder? Because obviously there's been a lot of different versions of events over the years, but uh, um, I would sort of probably say you probably got the, the, probably the best uh, track of what, what actually happened. So there were a lot of people involved in the events that led to his death. Um, and I'll just summarize briefly what, what happened. So after being ousted from power, he's put under house arrest and he eventually somewhat miraculously escapes house arrest and tries to drive to his stronghold in Stanleyville on the other side of the country from the capital. And he's caught by Mobutu's forces in the military and thrown in a military prison where it is hoped he won't be able to escape from. Zooming out at the same time, the Kennedy administration is about to take power in Washington. The Eisenhower administration had come to a close Kennedy had won the election. He was scheduled to be inaugurated on January 20th, 1961. And there was reason to believe that Kennedy was going to chart a less hardline course on Congo. And what that meant specifically was that he would be more amenable, it was thought, to some sort of deal whereby Lumumba was released from captivity and brought back into the political fold. Because he was, after all, the country's most popular politician it seemed only natural that he play some role as the country still flailed. So everyone on the ground in Congo knows this, that the Kennedy administration is a bit about to take power, including Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief. And on January 14th, 1961, Devlin learns from someone in Mobutu's circle that 
Lumumba is about to be sent to a province where he will almost certainly be killed upon landing. The Mobutu regime in power needed to get rid of Lumumba, didn't want to do the, the dirty work itself, so it concocted this plan. Devlin had a choice at that moment. He could have informed his superiors in Washington about mm. one of the biggest developments that was happening at the time. Yeah. And indeed, he was informing them about other twists and turns of events in Congo. Or he could sit on the information and keep it to himself. And that was what he decided to do. And it was an extremely fateful decision. And what happened, uh, why did he sit on this information? Well, he knew that had he told Washington what was about to happen, they would have his superiors would have told him to hold off and to put the brakes on this operation because this was a moment when one administration was leaving and another was coming in and it was not a time to make big policy decisions and have big things happen, particularly developments that you know could be detrimental. Um, and so he sat on this information. It was it was he basically gave a green light to Mobutu and his henchmen to transfer Lumumba to his death. And then that is indeed what happened. And on January 17th, Lumumba was uh, taken out of his prison cell, led onto a plane, a series of planes, and flown to the breakaway province of Katanga, where hours after landing, he was driven into a remote clearing in the woods and shot by um, local Congolese forces under the orders of their Belgian officers. Um, so, so that... Uh, you know, the story has traditionally been told with an emphasis on the Belgian hand, which you know indeed was very active and responsible. But what I was hoping to do was um, crack open a bit of the American role, because there was this key moment where Devlin, um, as I said, you know, gave the green light and kept Washington out of the loop. Now, just to back up a second, there's also another element of this that we haven't talked about, which was the CIA's uh poison plot against Lumumba. Yes, yeah. Um so I can I can talk about that uh briefly. Yeah, well yeah, please do because obviously yeah, as you were saying, so the CIA had a plot existing prior to Lumumba's death which involved poisoning him and and I think Larry Devlin claimed that he um he was against the idea is what he claimed. I don't know if that's true or not, and he sort of dragged his heels over it apparently. Right. So this is one of these um you know, truth is stranger than fiction episodes during the Cold War where um, President Eisenhower at a meeting of the National Security Council in August of 1960 uttered some words, the exact words are lost to history, but the they were interpreted by people present as get rid of Lumumba by all means necessary, including yeah. physically eliminating him. Sort of, will no one rid me of this troublesome prime minister? And that kicked off a process whereby the CIA sent a vial of poison to Congo, gave it to Larry Devlin, and instructed him to find a way to get it into Lumumba's food or toothpaste. And it would kill him very quickly, and it would look like it was a natural death. Um, and there was this uh, larger-than-life CIA scientist named Sidney Gottlieb who, was, who developed the operation. Um, so you mentioned that that Devlin claimed that he dragged his feet. It's it's an interesting question, and there, there's a bit of a debate about that, and and there's evidence on both sides. On the one hand, we know he didn't get he wasn't able to get access to Lumumba's house and entourage to deliver the poisons, and we know that the CIA, you know, his superiors in Washington were frustrated and would send him these cables basically saying, um, what's going on with this operation? Why haven't we heard anything recently? And he would write back and, and have all these excuses about why he couldn't um, make it happen. And uh, and he also, and this is evidence to the contrary, he also suggested other, other ways of killing Lumumba, requested a high-powered rifle, for instance. So it's, you know, the cable traffic of that time, in my estimation, is mixed in that... Um, he was not proving to be the most eager, enthusiastic follower of orders. On the other hand, um, he was, you know, he, he wasn't fully stonewalling the operation and was suggesting other other ways. Um, I think, I mean, 
really what happened is that the CIA's plot against Lumumba had been put in motion at a time when Lumumba was still prime minister. But then he was eventually, as I mentioned, ousted and put under house arrest. And yet the bureaucratic gears continued working. And so by the time the poison actually reached Congo, it was sort of, um, it had been overtaken by events. Um, however, sort of none of that in a way really matters because ultimately there is this key decision in January 1961 where Devlin could not have been unaware that the effect of his decisions was to lead to Lumumba's death. He could yeah. claim some distance from it perhaps and that yeah. he wasn't actually pulling the trigger or mm, putting mm. the poison in the toothpaste. Mm. But the, the the records are clear from the time of what happened. Are there any inklings as to Devlin's sort of motivation? Because obviously CIA officers are not really, um, well, the CIA is supposed to act on orders of the administration at the time. And is it sort of a, as you say, Kennedy's about to come in and Eisenhower's about to go out. Is it a question of just fulfilling Eisenhower's sort of wishes uh, before Kennedy comes in? Or is there something else afoot there? It's a bit strange, especially as the new administration is coming in. Well, I think the, the overriding factor here was the Cold War fear. Mm, mm. And it's important to try and put ourselves in the position of officials at the time, because this really did seem like an existential struggle where yeah. the Soviets had to be thwarted at every turn. And in their, in the minds of Devlin and others, Lumumba was an absolute danger who was about to come back to power and would lead the Congo to uh, communist rule, which in my view was a fantastical conspiracy theory that that they should have known better and and indeed other officials did not hold that view at the time but that was really what devlin believed i would also add he was personally invested in mobutu as america's man as our man in, in leopoldville and he had developed mobutu as a as a contact and as a you know client in effect and the prospect of Lumumba coming to power would mean a failure of his preferred leader of Congo. It would have meant a, a personal career failure for him. So there were all sorts of incentives for Devlin and others pushing in the same direction. Yeah. Now, um, just a little bit about the... See, we've already sort of touched upon this, but uh, can you talk to us about what is sort of known about Russian intelligence and dif diplomatic efforts in the Congo during that time? Yeah, so with the opening of the Soviet archives, it turned out, surprise, surprise, there wasn't a whole lot on Congo, and it was mm. viewed as not a key battleground in the Cold War, but as a place where, you know, the Soviets could score some propaganda points by pointing out the how the neo-imperialists neo were strangling this independent country in the cradle. Um, there turned out to be only three KGB officers in Congo at the time by the, you know, the, the best expert on this. That's his estimation. Um, there really was not a whole lot of interest. Um, Devlin and other Americans sort of saw the specter of Soviet influence everywhere they looked, but this was uh, this was more of a fantasy than reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one that one. Thank you for that. Um, so, what was Mobutu's rule like after he took over, and did the U.S. and Belgium really sort of benefit from his rule? Yeah, so he, you know, launched that what is known as his first coup in mm. 1960, where he neutralized the president and prime minister. Um, but then he eventually, uh, you know, sided with the president. So Joseph Kasavubu was nominally president of Congo, but all along Mobutu is really the power behind the throne. Um, in 1965, he did away with the pretense of a president altogether and got rid of Kasavubu and made himself president. And so began um, 32 years of, of rule. And did the U.S. benefit from it in some narrow Cold War sense, yes, there was a friendly pro-American dictator in power in Central Africa in, over this, you know, in this big, seemingly important country. So I think that was how it was viewed within the U.S. government as this, uh, you know, success. But only by the narrowest of Cold War logic is that really true. Um, 
what happened under Mobutu was that he was you know, utterly unrepresentative of the people, obviously. He was fabulously corrupt, and he ran the country into the ground. And in 1996 and 1997, it, it outright collapsed. There was a massive invasion by his neighbors, and uh, he fled into exile and then died of prostate cancer soon after. And that so began... Um, the, what is known as the Great African War or the Congolese Civil Wars, which killed literally millions of people. Um, and that was directly a result of um, of the installation of Mobutu into power. There was an interesting um, parallel you painted in, in describing Mobutu's sort of escape because he uh, was famous for taking the Concorde, apparently, to, was it to Europe? Uh, for extravagant visits and then obviously he had to slip out the country via by a plane whilst being shot at um and you know unfortunately Mobutu was not very uh you know he was very selfish in his motivations um I I, I found that really sort of fascinating yeah he even so he built this uh what was known as Versailles in the jungle mm. um at Badolite uh near his his hometown and he built this this fabulous palace and it and he extended the runway of the nearby airport so that it could accommodate the Concorde for shopping trips to Paris. And and as you said, he then ends up you know, holing up there in the final days of his rule and and escaping via cargo plane um, into exile and then dies soon thereafter. So he had a, he had an ignominious end to his long rule. Yeah, yeah. And just quickly Googling, it appears to be at least a picture of the uh, Concorde in Congo there. And the the palace still exists. It's now in ruins and oh. is something of a, a tourist attraction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see it now. That's fascinating. Well, thank you for that. Can you um, can you talk to us about? Um, so we've talked a bit about sort of Devlin and his involvement with Mobutu's rise to power. Now, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the latest Senate hearings, known as the Church Committee hearings, that took place and looked at the CIA's sort of use of covert action and how it affected those like Devlin involved in the in the murder of Lumumba. Yeah, so the people involved in the Lumumba plot thought that this secret would go with them to their graves. But then what happened was in the, you know, after Watergate, after Vietnam, there was a real lack of trust in the CIA, in American government institutions, and that kicked off the church committee hearings, which were the U.S. Senate um, investigated, you know, there's a special committee and it investigated CIA overreach. And one of the aspects it focused on was assassination plots. And so it looked at the operation against Lumumba, those against Allende, Arbenz, um, Trujillo, and, and it, uh, you know, they had not many months to conduct their investigatory research, but they were able to interview people, um, obtain cables from the time. And that really broke open the story about the, the poison plot against Lumumba. And uh, Larry Devlin, this was 1975, he had just retired from the CIA and uh, he and others get a message saying, we want you to testify in front of this this Washington committee. And um, as I learned from Devlin's daughter, he had planned to lie through his teeth and, you know, just deny, deny, deny. But then he's meeting with a, a colleague of his from the CIA who tells him, Larry, they have all the cables. They know everything. And so he then ends up telling the truth. Um, and you know, his, his testimony is it, one of the documents that I looked at. It was, it was very useful. Um, and, you know, he, he's being interviewed by these these lawyers and and one of them told me that when he when Devlin was asked you know where did these orders come from to assassinate Lumumba he said the president and one of the young lawyers wrote on a scrap of paper bingo because this was this key moment Devlin probably didn't even know how important the information he had just revealed was but it it showed that the chain of command went all the way to the top and actually of all the assassination plots the church committee looked at this was the only one where there was a clear link to the president of the united states mm. and were there any consequences of that uh no really i would say um and in fact the the problem with the church committee investigation 
which again had very little time to do its work, was that it focused exclusively on this poison plot, missing the broader picture of how the CIA had meddled in Congo to the detriment of the country and to the detriment of Lumumba personally. Um, because that poison plot sort of fizzled out, the, the church committee basically let the CIA off the hook for Lumumba's death. Yeah. And what happened to the Belgians who are alleged to have been involved with Lumumba's murder? Right. So in, um, you know, not that many years ago, uh, Lumumba's family, his children, um, sort of lodged a formal complaint with the Belgian government to investigate various Belgians who were said to have been involved. And, And, you know, it's sort of like murder on the Orient Express in that there were so many different people who each had their own reason to want Lumumba dead that teasing out causality and assigning blame can get pretty tricky. But there were various Belgians who, um, you know, played a role in Lumumba's transfer on the day of his death. Um, There were, as I mentioned, Belgian officers who literally gave the orders to kill um, Lumumba. They in turn were acting on behalf of the um, leader of the secessionist province. But there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, but you know, now it's more than six years later and, and those responsible are largely all, all gone. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. You mentioned your book that obviously there are different views of Lumumba and some view him as an agent of chaos. Some view him as a hapless fool who got outmaneuvered by powerful forces. Some view him as a flawless hero cut down by Imperial forces. Based on all that you've read, what do you think is a fair way to view Patrice Lumumba today? I wish I could give you some some short pithy answer to that, but <laughs> you can give me a long um, one if you like. <laughs> Lumumba, I mean, he he was. You have to be careful when you're when you're writing a book like this because, on the one hand, he is a victim. He was subject to forces beyond his control, some mm. of which he could not even see. On the other hand, he was also very much his own man. He was an agent. He made independent decisions. Um, you know, he he uh, was in charge of his own fate in many ways. So what I tried to do was lay out, you know, all the decisions he made, all the decisions others made, and let the reader decide for him or herself what to think of that. But I mean, Lumumba was fundamentally, um, you know, I I say at one point in the book that he was um, the country's best politician and perhaps its worst statesman, and that he was... um, fabulously charismatic. Everyone agreed on that, even his enemies. And he was, you know, represented this very optimistic strain within Congolese thinking at the time that, you know, the country was independent and it had to chart its own course and it it should be unified as one strong nation and, and could be an example to others. Um, and then he was also, on the other hand, he was not, um, he was not a particularly a uh, steady leader, as I mentioned, he changed his mind quickly. He pivoted. He, you know, would try one thing that wouldn't work. He'd try another. But um, again, it's all a consequence, really, of the extraordinary circumstances he was facing. Yeah, yeah. And just sort of, uh, just begin to sort of wrap up there. So the only surviving part of Lumumba's body was his tooth, which for years obviously sat in the Belgian prosecutor's office. Can you talk about talk to us about what happened to Lumumba's tooth um, and even the stages of the Belgian investigation today? Yeah. So um, the 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 story of Lumumba's tooth bookends my mm. book because um, you know it, as you mentioned, is the sole remaining relic of him and. His tooth, it was kept by, there was a Belgian officer who uh, was given the task of disposing of Lumumba's body, which had been buried in a hastily dug grave. And he exhumes the body and with others, um, drives it somewhere else, buries it, exhumes it again, and then dissolves it in a vat of sulfuric acid. Um, which turned Lumumba's flesh to a mucus, but it it uh, he kept some some gruesome keepsakes for himself, um, two teeth and allegedly a a finger bone. Um, he later claimed to have thrown these into the North Sea and gotten rid of them, um, 
But then in 2016, his daughter gave an interview to a Belgian publication where she admitted that she in fact still had the tooth and produced it for the interviewer. Meanwhile, Lumumba's children had uh, you know, launched this criminal complaint. And so once news that the tooth was still around got out, um, the Belgian federal police seized it as as evidence in this cold case. Mm. Um, it then languished for a few years and um, Lumumba's children uh, demanded its return. You know, this was, they had this very traumatic experience where their father was taken from them violently at, at a young age when they were very young. And, and they had never gotten any sense of closure anyway to say goodbye to him. And so, so they asked for his tooth. And finally, in 2022, last year, um, the tooth was re returned to the family in this ceremony in Brussels and then flown back to the country that is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm. And um, it toured the country and then was laid to rest in a mausoleum in Kinshasa, the capital. So it's this, um, for me, that was the end of the story and that, yeah. you know, Lumumba had finally made it home. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of incredibly sad and disturbing that the only bit that remained of him was a tooth, isn't it? It's, yeah, quite shocking. Mm-hmm. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for joining me today. Obviously, I highly recommend people read your book because we've kind of only scratched the surface of a very detailed and interesting sort of story. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your book? My website is stuartareid.com, S-T-U-A-R-T-A-R-E-I-D.com. And the book is called The Lumumba Plot, and you can get it wherever you, you get books. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. Thank you.